Well, good morning. This morning, we want to continue our discussion in Acts 13, beginning with, with verse 13, going to verse 52. And the title is Paul's First Apostolic Mission, Part 2. So after the visit to Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas traveled to the region of Pamphylia and then to Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day. They went to the synagogue and sat down and at they did this out of a mark of respect. It was a kind thing to do when they went into the, uh, to the synagogues to show respect because they were visitors. The Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch was a reminder of the bondage of the dispersion of the people of God because of their sin of idolatry. And Paul and Barnabas were sent there to declare good news. In many ways, the synagogue rep represented bad news, and Paul and Barnabas went in with a declaration of good news the divine solution to both the temporal and eternal bondage of the people of God to sin and death. At the end of the synagogue meeting that day, the leaders extended an invitation to Paul and Barnabas to speak. If they, they were basically asked if they had a word of encouragement, which they did. Isn't that a great way to, be, to speak, is to be invited to speak instead of just go presumptuously and try to demand to speak or insist on speaking? Paul stood up and with animation, which means he was clearly very engaged, moving his hands to make his points, he commanded them. This is interesting. He commands them to listen. And of course, listening then meant not just hearing, but hearing with the intent of obeying. And what he did, he shared a presentation about Jesus in the context of the meta narrative. This is the story that revealed how God redeemed fallen mankind. Now, it's important to understand that this message that Peter gave that day was to biblically literate people. The synagogue is located in Gentile territory. It's not in Judea or Jerusalem or even Samaria. It is in Gentile territory, and it's a marker. It's a reminder that the Jewish people failed to obey the law of God. And God had told him in the Old Testament, you fail to obey me, then you will be judged and you'll be judged by being dispersed. You will lose your national identity. You know, you won't lose your identity, a personal identity as a Jew, but you'll lose your national identity. So the Jewish people were scattered. And one of the places they wound up was here in Antioch in the, near the country of Pisidia. Antioch's not actually in Pisidia. It's next to Pisidia. So it's called Pisidia of Antioch because of the proximity there. But these people here now built a synagogue to propagate and preserve the message of Scripture, which was the Old Testament. So they gathered every Sabbath to read and study the Old Testament. This was what they did week after week after week. So they were very biblically literate. So this is a message we're going to hear Paul give to biblically literate people. We don't have people like this today. If you want to know how Paul spoke to biblically illiterate people, you have to go to Acts 17. Now there he's talking to biblically illiterate people. But here, this is biblically literate people. So while I think there are many lessons to be learned from this, many good truths, we have to remember this is not necessarily a model for today because today we are largely biblically Ill illiterate. Even those in the Christian community are, are largely illiterate 
particularly of the Old Testament. If they have much biblical literacy, it's mainly going to be of the New Testament today. And this is just where Christianity today, I think, is distorted and very weak. So as you read this, you're going to hear now a message to biblically literate people, which means they understood the backdrop of all that Paul is telling them. So Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail. He can just refer to things, allude to certain texts of Old Testament, and he knows they know those texts. His audience understands what he's saying. If you don't know those texts, you may not know what Paul's saying. So you have to go and look them up. So this is a, a, a very strong message given to a very specific group of people at a specific time who are highly biblically literate. So let's begin in verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Papos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John left them and went back to Jerusalem. This is John Mark, and we don't know why John Mark left. All we know is he left. And he would rejoin Paul eventually, but at this point in time, he left. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Pisidian Antioch. Now, that, that's probably about a 100-mile journey up over a mountain range. So it may have taken four or five, maybe six days for them to make this journey. I don't know. We don't know why they, they selected this city. But this city did have a synagogue. And so on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, showing great respect. And we don't know um, if they were the only visitors there or the people were used to visitors. But for whatever reason, at the end of the, the service, and their service was not like our services. Our service is largely about music and a little bit of a message. Their services are about, about scripture. They read the law. And they had a, a, a generally a three-year program, as I understand it, of what they would read. And they would read the law over the Pentateuch over and over again on a three-year schedule. And they would add to it the prophets, whatever prophetic message or passage was relevant to that particular reading that day. So this blend of the law and the prophets was read every Sabbath over and over again. This is what they did. The leaders of the synagogue then sent word to Paul and Barnabas who were sitting there. And they said, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, you can speak. So they were invited to speak, which is the great way to share truth. Be invited to share truth. And the to be able to receive an invitation, it is very helpful to be very humble. And so Paul and Barnabas show humility coming in, not demanding, not declaring, not insisting, but just setting down very kindly, patiently, and humbly, and not knowing whether or not they would be invited to speak. But they were. So let's take a look at what Paul had to say. Beginning in verse 16, Paul stood up and motioned with his hands and said, so he's very animated here, fellow Israelites, you see he's identifying as a Jew. And he knows most of the people there are Jews, but not all of them. He also addresses you who fear God. Listen, those will be Gentiles who have converted to Judaism. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors. The Israelites were God's chosen people of all the nations to do a great experiment in the Old Testament. And that experiment was clear. 
He said, I will give you a law, and if you will obey my law perfectly, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and then you will be light to the world. So that was the experiment. They failed miserably and were told, by, by God, you're going to fail. Isn't it interesting? If God gives you a command and gives you then all these instructions and then says you, you're going to blow it. Well, that's basically what he did. And so now the existence of this very synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia stands as a testimony to the failure of the Jewish people to obey the law of God. So that's the context they're in. It's a very, it's like you're right in the middle of a great picture and the building is even part of the picture, the existence of that building. So he goes on and talks about how God chose the Israelites and made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. He doesn't begin with Abraham or even Joseph. He begins with them being Egypt, being delivered from Egypt by the mighty hand of God. And then 40 years there, they wandered through the wilderness because of their sin. You see, once they were delivered by God, they didn't want to stay delivered. They wanted to go back to Egypt because the walk of faith was scary. The walk of faith had risk. The walk of faith was uncomfortable. And so they wanted to go back. And part of the judgment on them was this 40 years in the desert to purify them. This is what God does with hard times. He is purifying us. So after 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. God makes a way for his people. He moves other things out of the way. This all took about 450 years. That is from the beginning of the, the, the Jewish people going to, into Egypt until they actually go into the promised land. They had come from the promised land initially to Egypt 450 years prior to the return to the promised land, you know, as a place of salvation. And Egypt then became a place of bondage, marking how easy that the world can be become a place of bondage. And now they're going back for deliverance 450 years later. Reading on verse 20, then this all took place after 450 years. And after this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, that's all he's going to say about the period of the judges. He doesn't mention all the different judges. He just mentioned Samuel, the last judge. In verse 21, he starts talking about the kings. Then they asked for a king. That is, the Israelites asked for a king because that's how the Gentiles generally were ruled is by a king. They wanted to be like the nations of the world. This is what we tend to want to do. We don't want to live holy lives, which means set apart to God. We want to live like everybody else. We want to do what everybody else does. We want what everybody else has. We define things the way everybody else does. And so that's what the Israelites were showing was in the base nature of them. It's in our base nature as well. So they asked for a king. You may recall that Samuel objected and tried to talk him out of it. And God told Samuel, no, just let him have it. You see, what God does is when we decide we want to do some sin or we want to rebel in some way, God's response is, okay, you want that? I'll let you have it. And so when Adam and Eve decided they wanted to live apart from God, God said, fine, I'll let you do that. And that's what you see. Mankind is now living this experiment of trying to live and make up, make up their, make their way apart from God. This is the context in which we live. 
So they asked for this king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after removing him, he doesn't even explain why he removed him. He assumes you know that story. And he raised up David as their king and testified about him. So now we have the second king, David, who happened to be a murderer and an adulterer. Nevertheless, what we have here is a man that it is said in the Old Testament, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. That is what God is really after. He wants people who will carry out his will, and he's not expecting us to be perfect. We can never be perfect. David wasn't perfect, but yet David was a man after God's own heart. From this man's descendants, that is from David, you know, as he promised, which means scripture records that someone from David's lineage would be the king and savior. God brought to Israel the savior, Jesus. Jesus is the savior. See, he goes through this this history from verse 16 to verse 23 very quickly. And he assumes you get it all. You understand it all. You know exactly what he's talking about. You know, the Old Testament predicts the Messiah, and Jesus is the Christ. And then we have, now it's going to talk about Christ's time here on earth. Before his coming to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. Before Jesus was actually announced, before he launched into his itinerant teaching uh, phase of his life, which is the last three years of his life, John the Baptist is coming, preparing the way of the Lord. And as John was completing the mission, he said, who do you think I am? I am not the one. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. But one is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. In other words, he is so much beyond me in every way. I'm not worthy to do anything but to bow down before him. Brothers and sisters, children of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, it is to us that this word of salvation has been sent. You see, he doesn't explain salvation. He seems you it seems that you know it. You should understand this. The, it, the experiment with the law failed. It could never bring forgiveness of sin. It could never justify man before God. It could never bring eternal life. Could not do any of those things, not because there was anything wrong with the law, but because man was totally depraved. And mankind did not understand that. Total depravity means that no matter what we do, We can never be good enough to meet God's righteous standards and never have standing with him. We can never self-save. We can never be justified, self-justified. We have to be justified some other way. And the Old Testament is setting the stage for a savior because if you cannot self-save, you need a savior. So we have a word of salvation that's come to us. Now let's go on to verse 27. Since the residents of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him killed. 
when they had, had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now, this is, again, just an amazing reality here that you see the people who were contemporaries of Jesus did not recognize Jesus as Lord in Christ. You remember in Acts 2.36, in Peter's first message on the birthday of the ecclesia, he's explaining what's going on and what God is doing. His major point is this. You can know for certainty that this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Now, today, we like to talk about Jesus being Christ, the Savior, but we don't like to talk about Jesus being Lord. In fact, we'll dismiss it pretty quickly, and we'll call it legalism. Well, I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. We'll say things like that, but we need to be very clear. Grace is the foundation of our salvation, but grace does not relieve us from our requirement to obey the will and ways of God. In fact, God is so gracious to us that he's going to give us his spirit to empower us to be able to do that in ways that never before in history could the people of God, you know, do, obey God like they can through the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not perfectly, but it will be better. And we have a call to live at a more holy lives than what you see typically of the best saints in the Old Testament. This is why it said the least in the kingdom of God is more holy, more righteous than even John the Baptist, who was the best, you know, before we have Christ bringing the kingdom of God to bear. So when they had carried out the death of Christ, they all been written about him, they put him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. This is the linchpin of Christianity. If there's no resurrection, there is no Christianity. And the way that God validates this is he's going to actually leave witnesses. And he appeared many days to those who, who came up with him. That is, they came up with Jesus from Galilee. These are Galileans who were his disciples, his, who had become his apostles. They came to Jerusalem with him and are now his witnesses. That is, they saw his death, burial, and resurrection. They saw him in the, before his ascension. They saw him in that time between resurrection and ascension when, as Acts chapter 1 tells us, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That was the message of Jesus, was the kingdom of God. We generally don't have a, much clue about what that really means today because we're not very well taught. We generally are focused on people getting saved, going to heaven. So there's our mindset, and we know so little about what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. Well, the whole book of Acts is giving us an intro into the kingdom of God at, at a level and a, a dimension at depth that is largely not understood prior to this time in history. So we need to grab a hold of what he's telling us here. He goes on in, in verse 32, and we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. So notice in verse 31, he tells, he tells you that the witnesses were the people that came with Jesus from Galilee. They're the ones that saw him in his resurrected state. Paul did not see him in that state. So Paul is now proclaiming the good news, but Paul was not one of the witnesses. So that tells you right there that this idea of witnessing, the witness 
and the understanding of witness today is probably off. We have this big thing about sharing our testimony. That's we're witnessing for Christ. We use that terminology. Probably not a good terminology to use because the real, or at least you have to, you have to make a definition to explain it. Because the witness here in verse 31 is the only people that could do that were the ones who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. So there were a very limited number of people who could do that. And Paul certainly claims, makes no claim to being one of those people. Even though he was a contemporary, he apparently did not see the resurrected Christ. However, Paul could now and does now proclaim the good news about Jesus being Lord and Christ and all the implications of that, that is his charge. And that's what he has been redeemed by the blood of the lamb to do in part. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as is written in the second Psalm. So you can see this is another quote from the Old Testament. And throughout this passage and throughout this, this message, there are quotes from the Old Testament assuming you know and understand these. So he says from the second Psalm, you are my son today, I become your father. And as to this raising from the dead, never to return to see decay, he has spoken this way. Now he's gonna quote another Psalm, or this is Isaiah. I will give you holy and sure promises of David. So he, he quotes the Old Testament frequently here, assuming you know these passages. He's not bothering to unpack them or explain them. He assumes you know them. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not let your Holy One see decay. That's from the Psalms. And, for, and finally, in verse 36, he says this, for David, you see, Jesus came as a son of David. David is a type of Christ, but there's gonna be a distinction here. There's a lot of similarities, but there will be a distinction. For after David served God's purpose in his own generation, and so did Jesus, he fell asleep, and so did Jesus. He was buried with his fathers, and so was Jesus. And David decayed, but Jesus didn't. But the one God raised from the dead did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Now he he's, he's introducing something he's not talked about, in this message up until now, forgiveness of sins. This is, he doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to introduce it. He just talks about it because he knows they understand that the law was about a way to be forgiven of their sins. They were covering their sins. They were sacrificing because of sins because without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. Massive amounts of blood was shed through the years of the Old Testament period, and it never accomplished forgiveness of sins because the blood of animals can't do it, only the blood of a human. And so Jesus died to give us forgiveness of sins, something the Old Testament could never do because the Old Testament was dependent upon human obedience, and human obedience is never adequate before God. Verse 38, verse 39, he says, everyone who believes is justified. Now we have justification introduced as another concept to him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said 
and the prophets does not happen to you. Now he's going to issue a warning from the prophets. <clears throat> Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were explained it to you. Wow, how do, how, what a way to finish a message. We don't finish messages with warnings like that. We finish messages with, with some kind of feel good. No, he doesn't mind putting something right in front of you, a direct charge, basically saying, you better be careful or you will be guilty of, of violating this warning. The truth is laid out in front of you and you can't hear it. You don't hear it. So how do they respond to this? Well, let's go on to that, to the next, the final section here. As they were leaving, the people urged them, urged Paul and Barnabas. Apparently Barnabas had a role in this, although what he said is not recorded about these matters the following Sabbath. Okay, so they, in other words, the people wanted to hear more. There's a lot of interest in what, what Paul has been saying. And after the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism, these will be Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them. In other words, as they walked out, there was a conversation going on, and they had urged them to continue in the grace of God. Now we have grace introduced. You see, grace is all about the empowering presence of Christ now to be able to live in a different way, a new level. He's telling them about the grace for regeneration. There's grace for sanctification, and there will be grace for glorification, the three tenses of salvation. They would have talked about these freely. They understood them. We generally don't understand them. The following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Imagine that. Almost the whole town comes. Well, you can imagine what the religious leaders thought about that. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. You see, religious leaders always oppose truth because religious leaders are about themselves. Godly leaders are about God. But religious leaders, and I'm using this term very in a very limited sense, religious leaders are about religion, about ritual, and ultimately about power and about their control. And so they will oppose truth when truth begins to draw a crowd. Now, if truth doesn't draw a crowd, they don't pay attention. But if truth draws a crowd, they're going to pay attention and begin to oppose it. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary for that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, quoting again an Old Testament scripture. See, multiple times he's quoted scripture here without any explanation. He just quotes it. Says, this is that, this is that, this is that. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. How do you honor the word of the Lord? Well, you become obedient to the word of the Lord. That's how you honor it. And all who, who had been appointed to an eternal life believed. This brings in the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly chooses whom he will, he will regenerate. And those whom he regenerates, he will sovereignly continue to sanctify. That's why sanctification is the marker. 
Jesus tells us that by their by their fruit you will know them. The marker that someone really is a Christian is you will see progressive growth and maturity in Christ. That's a mark that they really have come to know the Lord and they're living in the grace of God. They're being empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow up. They have been appointed to eternal life and they will believe. You will never believe until you are empowered by the Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, that faith is not a work. If you think you believe it comes from you, that makes faith a work. But if you recognize that you will never believe, and Paul says there's no one who seeks God, no, not one, in Romans 3, you recognize that truth. No, there's no such thing as a seeker. The only way you will seek God is you're empowered by the Spirit to seek God. You will never seek God in your own strength. You will only seek God when the Holy Spirit is touching you. And that means you've been regenerated, you've been born again, and now you are be, have the capacity to begin to believe and express faith. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews excited, they incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. In other words, the religious leaders, that is the people trying to do their own will according to their own ways, they're opposing God. They use the people that are in their community who are who claim to be seeking God. They abuse them and use them to oppose truth. And we have a lot of that going on in the body of Christ today, people opposing truth. They don't see the truth. They don't understand the truth. And religious leaders are manipulating them to oppose the truth. So they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the district. Now, how would we respond to that? Persecution's bad. That's kind of what we would think. Oh, this is horrible. That will discourage the believers. They will scatter. You know, they will, they will chuck the faith, all these kinds of things. But that's not what happened. Look what happened. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet and went to Iconium. So they left. When, the, when you reject the word, God's mess, the, you know, God sent a messenger, you reject the word, he sends a messenger someplace else. But the disciples who were there were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So God uses the persecution to accomplish his will. And he, basically, there's judgment upon the people because the messengers of God are sent out. That's a form of judgment. When the people who speak truth are sent out from you, that is a form of judgment. Nevertheless, the true disciples will be strengthened and built up and full of the Holy Spirit. That's the beauty of it. All right, very quickly, I want to make some theological points. As we go through Acts, what we're seeing here is the unpacking of what the kingdom of God is, what Jesus means by that, what is the gospel message associated with the kingdom of God, and you know what is it we are learning more about God that maybe was veiled in the Old Testament and is becoming more clear now in the New. So we have a number of things we can see. Number one is we see God is knowable. We have a God who reveals his word. We have a God who communicates. We have a God who empowers. So we have now a knowable God, and he is a personal God as well. As a personal God, he commissions and empowers, and he sanctifies us. He's also a sovereign God. He defines a Christian worldview. He defines the faith. We don't get to define the faith. 
It's not up to us to be definers. We are discerners. Our job is to discern the truth, not define the truth. He defines the truth. And he also elects. He appoints people to eternal life. The reverse is he appoints people to eternal damnation. Now, that's called double double uh, imputation or, excuse me, double election. Uh, that is many times very opposed by the body of Christ today. There's a lot of people that don't like that because we want to think that God's love extends to everyone. But Romans 9 tells us that God makes some vessels for for uh, honor and some for dishonor. And that's his sovereign pleasure. And we just don't like it. It doesn't fit how we want to think about God, but we have to face the truth that God does a point. God has sovereign pleasure about how he does things in his universe. We also have a holy God, a holy God who is just. He requires holiness to be in his presence and to accept sinners, there must be a price paid. The, pay, the price of sin was paid by Jesus. It could never be paid by us trying to obey law. That will never work. It can only be paid by the righteous act of Jesus. And then that righteousness being imputed to us in our sin, being imputed to Christ for him to pay for that sin. That's the double imputation. So then we have the love of God. We see that. We have the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the blessing of salvation, being filled with the joy and the Holy Spirit. These are manifestations of God's love. And finally, we see something of the strategic nature of God, how intentional he is. He has this great meta narrative going on, and now everything fits into it. The whole story of redemption, the whole story of who God is and how he's working through history, it's all unpacked here for us in Scripture. That is because God is sovereign, intentional, and strategic. There is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The themes of the Old Testament transition and set up the themes of the New Testament. Today, we have people that will look at the Old Testament and says, well, that was a different God, a different time, or the Israelites, they failed, they blew it, now we're in a new era. The Old Testament has nothing to do with us. That is so wrong. Christianity has flowed right out of the Old Testament. The Old Testament sets up the church age that we're in now. It's all very congruent. There's great continuity between the two. There's change, but there is continuity. So let me give you a quick word of application. Getting the meta narrative right. A recent Christian Newswire post promoted a new book titled Revolt Against Reality by Catholic Arthur and podcast host Gary Muchuda. <clears throat> According to this post, this book seeks to answer one question. How did we arrive at a society where lies are true and facts are offensive? How did that happen? The post continued. Revolt against reality is a roller coaster ride through history, starting with the fall of Adam and Eve, passing on through to our modern age of secularism, indifference, and excess. But Judah de uh, delves into epic setting events from the Christological heresies of the early church and the Protestant Reformation to the corruption of Catholic academia and the battle of the sexes, at each step highlighting common threads that connect every human crisis with our first parents' rebellion against God's truth. Each heresy, each war, each cultural controversy is one more step 
toward the truth manifest in the incarnation of Christ and a step away from this in, this truth. A move away from reality and a move toward insanity, and all we need to do is reverse that trend. In other words, he's saying we have moved progressively away from the truth. So how do you solve this problem? Well, here's, some, here's uh, his solution. Here's what he says. It took many softball steps away from the truth over centuries for the world to get so out of whack as it is now. But once we know that we've abandoned truth, why the world stopped making sense, we can begin to chart a way back to reality. So how do we do that? Well, it depends on your worldview. If you're an atheist who believe in no God, no transcendent truth, no purpose for existence, the material universe is simply the product of unexplained natural forces. There is no way back because you're not really off course because there's no way. Everything's random. A way implies order. And atheists don't believe in any kind of order. It's all random. Of course, the reality is you have this orderly universe that they live in that, that is undeniable, yet they deny it. That's why atheism has no standing. It has, it's, not, it's not credible but yet we continue to give it a lot of credibility because people claim to be atheists and we accept them and we need to start challenging them and telling them, no, that's not credible. Atheism does not explain reality at all. Others argue that the universe is the product of dysfunction caused by greed. This has led to the oppressed and the unoppressed and the oppressor. A premise behind this argument is belief in the goodness of mankind. Therefore, if greed is removed, then mankind will assert his goodness and the world will enjoy utopia. This is Marxism. And today, Marxism is manifested through critical race theory. That's the common methodology of today, and that's popped up over the last year and a half. It's just been amazing to see how this emerging of this Marxist theory has come up as the alternative meta narrative. Of course, it is false because it fails to recognize the truth of sin. It continues to operate under the presumption of the goodness of man, and all we have to do is just deal with this what they call racial bias, and then the goodness of man will come out. Well, their solution to deal with the racial bias is to now reverse the bias and be biased against white males particularly and call white supremacy the problem. And of course, in so doing, you're going to wind up with just reverse racism. So it's no solution at all. And it really doesn't address the sin issue at all. So it, it's totally inadequate. The Christian view is based on the meta narrative scripture. This is the only adequate way to explain reality. Mankind was created good, but sinned. The sin is imputed to all sins who are consequently, all, all humans who are consequently totally depraved and therefore unable to self-save. God's love and mercy are displayed through the meta narrative of redemption that provides a way for fallen mankind to be saved. According to the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, the meta narrative includes a chosen people group, that is the Jews, and a savior, that is Jesus, who was a Jew. The scripture records the story of God's redemption of fallen mankind and the restoration of the uncontested rule of Christ over creation. Included in the meta narrative is the preparation for the incarnation of Christ, his incarnation on earth, and the story after his time of his incarnation. And the story ultimately culminates in the second advent of Christ. Christianity is based on this biblical meta-narrative, the story of the creator who created the universe good, but mankind fell, and how God extended his mercy through forbearance and didn't execute the full 
extent of judgment at the time of the fall, but deferred it. His forbearance is the reason that we exist today. And now he executes through history a great story of redemption, and the protagonist of the story is Jesus. So since the fall of man, Satan and his minions have led a rebellion against Jesus that has progressively led humanity into this current state where truth and reality are progressively disconnected from God. So the idea of a progressive today, when you hear somebody claim to be a progressive, that you need to understand what they're claiming. They're claiming to progressively disconnect from God and his standards. So we would call that from a Christian worldview, regression. That is not progress. That is regression, but they call it progress. And we just need to understand it's progressively regressing, progressively disconnecting from God. Ultimately, the way back will be through the building of the ecclesia, the return of Christ and the final judgment for sin. In the meantime, followers of Jesus are created and called to participate in the meta narrative by playing their roles in the battle between the forces of of Antichrist and the forces of Christ. In whatever way each disciple of Jesus is called to serve the purpose of God in the meta narrative, this is the reason and purpose for our existence. May we each, as true followers of Christ, have the grace to see our purpose and fulfill it for the glory of God as part of God's kingdom work, as part of his eternal work, as part of our responsibility to say thank you for the gift of life. We are your servants. What better thing can we do than simply be servants when we realize we have the greatest gift of all. There's nothing we could do to buy it or earn it. We've been given the gift of life. We now can only do one thing. With gratitude, we can say thank you by being the servants of God, fulfilling our purpose in his great meta narrative. May we have grace to do that well. In Jesus' name. Amen.